Alright guys, how you doing? Welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast. I uh, gave you a little uh, a little extra intro there. Welcome to episode 90. Back at ya. It's actually episode 89, but I'm one ahead on the Apple count, or one behind their count, so let's just make it even 90. It was the bonus episode. That was the trusty Telecaster that was built for Nancy Wilson of Heart by a good friend of mine who happened to be her guitar tech. She played a concert with it and then said, can you make it for me in blue? And he did, and I got the white one. So I broke it out, broke out the drum machine from the mid-90s, and uh, here we are. (laughs) We're back at it. Let's get into it. Let's talk about the week that we just went through. Lots of crazy stuff happened. Elon Musk flew over to watch the World Cup on Sunday with none other than Jared Kushner and Ken Griffin. Ken Griffin is a big hedge fund owner and supporter of Ron DeSantis and other fascist GOP candidates, to put it mildly. And, uh, you know, my thoughts are Elon, you know, obviously went over there to get investors right he's looking to get bailed out he's hemorrhaging money as i'm taping this twitter stock is at 148 (laughs) and dropping you know with a bullet so uh it was almost 400 six months ago so you do the math that's not sustainable and he needs help he needs to step down from twitter and he needs to stop the bleeding at tesla and my thought is that he's engaged with probably jared kushner as a cutout to rupert murdoch And I'll tell you why, because there's still a lot of value in Twitter for the Republicans, for their next campaign, for the presidential campaign, to keep the chaos front and center so the Democrats can't accomplish much. You know, they're gonna, they still are. Biden is obviously accomplishing a lot. But the idea of, you know, grabbing the information headlines, you know, the scandal du jour, right? The the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Bobert feuds, these kind of things that suck us in are what have value now in the in the GOP, right? Cuz they don't bring serious candidates. They're not trying to legislate. They don't they don't introduce legislation. Jim Jordan has never authored and passed a bill in his entire 16-17 years in Congress, maybe more. They're there to troll people. They're there to disrupt the progress and the democratic sort of application of laws on behalf of corporate interests, you know, and billionaires and people that don't want to pay their fair taxes, that want to continue to, you know, use government resources and not 
not only pay their fair share, but exploit workers. You know, Tesla itself is a non-union shop, right? And, and, and the way they got around union protections was to offer stock incentives to their employees, right? To their workers. And now that stock itself is not worth what it was, right? That might have seemed like a fair trade a couple of years ago. Yeah, I'm not going to get, you know, paid sick leave. And if I get hurt, I don't have any protections, but I'm going to have all this stock and walk away rich. And now you're not, <laughs> you're going to walk away with, you know, a stock that's rapidly losing value. So my point is the chaos protects a certain style of doing business that has come to prominence in the United States, you know, and somebody like Rupert Murdoch still benefits from that. He's thrown his hat in, you know, his hat in the ring sort of with DeSantis and publicly kind of disavowed Trump. The New York Post has had some brutal Trump headlines in the last month, you know, ever since Trump announced his candidacy. So Kushner's very close with Murdoch. They used to go out on the boat together. You know, Wendy Dang Murdoch is the one who got Kushner and Jared to get back together when they had broken up. They broke up in the time I worked on Celebrity Apprentice. Like when I first met him, they were dating. You know, Trump would call him the Jew. Like he was like, I want no part of this situation. He bailed. Wendy Dang Murdoch brought Ivanka out on a yacht in the Turkish, you know, in the Mediterranean or something. And next thing you knew, they were married. You know, <laughs> we went to do the, uh, the next season and they were back together. So they were this power couple that had designs on, on running the world in a way, you know, on helping these oligarchs solidify power on a global basis and, and amassing so much wealth that people like you and me would, you know, have no choice but to fall in line, right? And, and Trump was sort of seen as the figurehead of this, right? His political career was based on the Russian model, right? It was going to be a kleptocracy. He would be in charge if you curried favor with him, you could do whatever you wanted and exploit whoever you wanted as long as you paid him, you know, a tithe, as long as he got a piece of the action, which was always the case with Trump back to his casino days. You know, the guys that would sell, you know, cheap little bindles of cocaine on the floor would kick some back to the boss. There's nothing that happens in Trump's world that he doesn't get a taste of, including the brothels and Trump Tower and all the stuff I've talked about forever, which might seem seedy to you guys, but there was a point to it, right? There's a point in protecting a multinational criminal enterprise, right? It's much bigger than Trump. It was bigger than Jeffrey Epstein. You know, it's part of a global cabal of sort of evildoers. And here we are on Sunday, you're looking at that skybox at the World Cup and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, a bunch of guys from Qatar, which had no business hosting the World Cup. You know, they built that stadium where the game was played on the blood of immigrants, right? Guys died putting that together from Southeast Asia. I think I talked about it last week and they'd bring them over. They'd, they'd take their passports and, and work them and put them in substandard housing, like horrible housing, you know, like a hundred dudes in one toilet kind of disgusting situations, which freaked me out because they could have afforded to do the right thing. They have more money than God. You know, they were spending all this money on the vanity project of having the World Cup and the, the sort of reputational laundering that FIFA was allowing them to do. FIFA itself is very corrupt, obviously. They got the, the, game, the games themselves because of kickbacks, you know, because of corruption. It's one of the most corrupt organizations in the world, but it represents the most popular sport in the world, right? And what better way 
to get people to think like, hey, maybe we should go to Doha for the next, you know, you know, hedge fund convention or family vacation or whatever. Not that anybody's going there on a vacation, but my point is they had a vested interest and were willing to spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, to have this thing, right? They could have just fed the workers properly. They could have just put them in decent, you know, army level kind of barracks, right? It didn't have to be fancy. Those guys wouldn't have bitched about it if they were treated humanely. They got to save up some money and send it home, which was their intent in going there, which makes them heroes. You know, this whole migratory class of workers that have no choice but to travel the world, go to foreign lands and work their asses off to send some money back home so their kids can get an education, you know, so their moms can get health care, so they can put food on the table is a giant untold story that's happening on the planet right now. You know, it's like this other class of people that are invisible to much of us. You know, people don't think about it. They go on a cruise. They're like, how come everyone's from the Philippines here? You know, who are the people that are making that cruise happen? You know, who are the people that are changing your linens and cooking your food, you know, and cleaning up your room? You know, those are people that are doing that far from home, working crazy hours, often getting exploited, and they're invisible on the world stage, you know, and, and here's a chance where their labor was under the spotlight, right, because of all the, not just malfeasance, but corruption and lying and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric that, that Cutter, you know, instigated and fomented, right, because it's part of their political beliefs, you know, I don't even want to say religion because it's just misogyny. They hate women. They hate anybody who's other. It's just, you know, it's the same thing as any fundamentalist religion, like a couple of dudes with all the money make all the choices and you either get in line or get the hell out or get punished. So the fact that they punished the workers sticks in my craw, you know, and it was, I was pissed even having to watch it take place there, but I did watch it, you know, but the interesting thing was Sunday and seeing Jared Kushner there with Ken Griffin and Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk was there with his hand out looking for money. They didn't have a seat for him. That's symbolic, right? He wasn't sitting down in that skybox. They made him stand, you know, like a punk, right? Because he is a punk. You know, he overplayed his hand on the world stage and he looks like a fool. And the Saudis backed him in the original takeover, right? He had to borrow the money to get the $44 billion to complete the deal in October. So it stands to reason that a lot of those guys are like, hey, we want to know where our money's going, <laughs> you know? We want to know what's going to happen with this situation. And Elon screwed, so he definitely reached out to Kushner. I don't know definitely. This is my theory. He, he reached out to Kushner. Kushner's like, all right, meet me at, you know, meet me at the World Cup and I'll introduce you, you know, to some people. I'll bring Ken along. Maybe Murdoch would like to keep Twitter afloat throughout the next election, right? Because if Twitter tanks, if it goes bankrupt, then everybody, you know, if, if you can't use the site anymore, that's a weapon that's no longer available to the GOP. Because as I've talked about in other weeks, they're de-incentivizing progressive speech, right? They're making it impossible to be on there if you're somebody who continues to speak out. We, we still do it, but... You know, there was a big purge last week. They kicked my friend Aaron Rupar off. Over a half dozen other journalists that covered Elon Musk got just kicked off. You know, arbitrarily kicked off. You know, Aaron got put back on, but 
I know Aaron. He, he's got a sub stack and he's got two little kids and a wife, you know, in, in Minnesota. And I doubt his wife makes enough, you know, for them to, to, to be set. So he was probably in a panic. I've read his stuff. He was, you know, he was like, damn, you're cutting. He got cut off from his pool. You know, you need that. If you have a big Twitter following and you're sort of independently freelanced, you know, based, as I said last week, or a comedian or a performer, you need that marketplace, that pool of potential, you know, audience members or subscribers or whatever it is, you know, listeners. It's an important thing and it's worth remarking on how much pleasure Elon Musk seems to take in, in hurting other people's livelihoods, right? So while he's doing all this chaos on the world stage and spending the kind of money that could solve childhood poverty, you know, that could pay off student debt, un, un, untold things you could do, you know, with $44 billion, you know, there's no amount of like good gestures you could, you could do with that kind of money. And what did he choose to do? He spent it on a vanity project to disrupt democracy, to disrupt, you know, progressive speech. And his personal pleasure in doing that seems to be punishing people who have much less than him, right? The first thing he did when he took over was fire everybody at Twitter. You know, think about that. Right before the holidays, he fires all these guys. You know, these, these guys who write code and work in an office and had a pretty reasonable presumption to, to you know, think that they were going to have a pretty normal career path, right? They're well-educated, you know, technical guys that are going to an office job with a solid company in the tech field. You know, you think everything's going to be normal, and then this freak show buys your company, and all of a sudden you're unemployed, you know? And, and Elon's making jokes about it on Twitter like it's funny. It's not funny. It's not funny to mess with people, right? And the kind of guys that do it just because they can are the worst type of dudes. They're narcissists, you know, they're people that are wounded deeply inside and they constantly have to lash out at others. That's what Trump is. You know, Trump's mom was probably an alcoholic, right? Trump's an abused kid. If you look at, not to feel sorry for him, but I'm saying Trump was a bad seed who was emotionally, if not, you know, alcoholically abused by his mom. You just look at his mom. She's a freak show. You know, again, this is just a theory, right? His dad is obviously a lunatic. Everyone knew that. He was a racist KKK guy. But look at how Trump ends up, right? Look at how much hatred he has towards women, right? And towards any other man that sort of threatens him in any kind of successful way. Trump always has to feel like the toughest guy in the room. Elon has those same you know, attributes, the wounded child, you know, he's got this freaky mom who's making TikTok videos. I saw one of them. Do yourself a favor. Do not watch it because you want to, you know, you'll want to gouge your eyes out afterwards. But he's got this narcissistic mom who's making TikTok videos. He's got a father that married his stepdaughter and had a kid with her, <laughs> you know, so he's coming from a freak show as well. They made all their money off of an emerald mine in apartheid era South Africa, just like Trump's dad made all his money building, you know, ostensibly building low income housing for GIs and then basically cheating the tenants, cheating on his taxes, going in business with the mob, laundering money, racially discriminating, you know, and then handing it over to his idiot son, right, who ran the company into the ground 
right, who ran his casinos into the ground, who ran everything he touched into the ground. Trump has never contributed anything to the American marketplace, not just as a politician, right, not just rhetorically. None of his products were ultimately successful, right? His buildings weren't successful. Trump organization was just found guilty of 17 counts, you know, of tax fraud and evasion, right? I don't know the technical terms, but, you know, Alan, they tried to pin it on Alan Weisselberg. Alan didn't do anything without Trump's blessing. Like I just said earlier, like Trump knows about everything that's going down. He, he dictates what the women wore in the White House. He dictated who got close-ups on the beauty pageants. He would come in the truck and say, get a close-up on her tits. No, not the Asian one, you know, the blonde with the big tits. Like that's how he would talk, okay? He tries to micromanage everything in terms of appearance. And Elon Musk has that same vibe, right? Has that same feel of like, what are you doing? Tweeting. You're supposed to be in charge of three companies, right? Tesla, Twitter, and whatever the other stupid company is called, the one that's going to build the tunnels from Vegas and stuff, right? So he's got a pretty powerful job. And what's he doing? He's flying over on his private jet halfway across the world to watch a soccer game, you know, football for my listeners overseas, and then tweeting about polls and then retweeting Hunter Biden propaganda, which, by the way, is worth discussing again, feeds into Murdoch's narrative, right? Because the Hunter Biden thing is basically what the GOP is going to run on this next term. MTG and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and all these morons, you know, once they figure out who the speaker is going to be, you know, it'll probably be Kevin McCarthy. But once they settle on that, they're going to open these sham hearings and it's going to be Benghazi 2.0 and it's just going to be a bunch of noise and clutter you know, and chaos designed to impede the progress of democracy and legislation and fair representation, right? Because they don't want people on the coast getting a leg up. They want to be a placeholder for autocracy, right? They're, they're hedging their bets that a Republican will be able to come back to power in 2024. The weaker the legislative agenda is until then, the better off that Republican will be when he takes power. So they're going to do all this chaos. And that chaos isn't as effective unless it has a platform, right? And Twitter is a perfect place to get outraged every day, to say, can you believe the way Jim Jordan talked to Dr. Fauci on his grilling, you know, when they're trying to impeach Fauci, which is another one of their, you know, wild goose chases that makes no sense in a normal world? Right. You'd be like Dr. Fauci guy went to Regis High School, Holy Cross, one of the top medical scientists in the country, head of NIH, spent his entire life helping people. All of a sudden he's supposed to be a villain. Right. But the 75 year old in diapers down in Mar-a-Lago who spent most of his career, you know, assaulting women in his gaudy hotel rooms and bankrupting companies and laundering money for scumbags is somehow a hero you know, worthy of NFT trading cards, which was his latest scam, which, by the way, was an admission that he knows he's not going to win in 2024. He won't be the candidate. He will get indicted. They all want that now in the GOP, right? They're thirsty for Ron DeSantis, and DeSantis knows it, and that's why DeSantis has become an anti-vaxxer 
and become even more QAnon. I know he, he impeded the vaccine movement and COVID precautions from the beginning in Florida and killed, unt you know, there's numbers. I don't have them, you know, but tens of thousands of people died in Florida that didn't have to die if not for a corrupt governor's own designs on power and his own political future. That's well documented, right? So now he's willing to double down on that and become an anti-vaxxer. You know, the same guy who wouldn't, you know, disavow Nazis that are showing up in uniforms at his rallies. Why is he doing that? Because that is going to be the same chaotic talking point that will be effective, that will be weaponized on a place like Twitter. So keeping Twitter alive and helping, helping the sort of GOP MAGA army you know i don't know what the right term is here you know the, the chaos agents the ignorant masses that follow this stuff are doing the bidding for guys in the shadows right the Koch brothers you know ken griffin as i as i talked about you know leonard leo at the federalist society all these sort of guys behind the scenes that are pulling the strings that have their little puppets on the supreme court that have their little puppets in congress that own mitch mcconnell that own joe manchin that certainly own ron desantis by the way when desantis was a junior congressman right he sought out and got a meeting with the Koch brothers which normally doesn't happen right you got to be a big player on the national scene to come under their purview but he was arrogant and audacious enough. He asked for a meeting, he got it, and he sold himself to them, you know? He impressed them with his ruthlessness, with his lack of any sort of moral compass, and his, his own designs on power, which is the first thing those guys look for. You know, you have to be so imminently corrupt that you're willing to do anything. Watch tens of thousands of people die, for example, so you can protect their interests and their bottom line. And you might think, why would they be interested in harming the country? They're, they're interested in continuing their profits, right? A company like the Koch brothers makes a lot of their money off of oil refineries, which have to be, you know, the oil then has to be transported in pipelines across public lands, right? That's the scam 101. They pay no, you know, extra duties to do this, okay? They pollute all the time. It's part of their business model. If a spill happens, they don't, like... You know, if they find out like one of the tubes, you know, the, the, the pipelines has a, a, a weak spot on it and to shut down production and repair that costs more money than just dealing with the inevitable leak and paying a couple fines to the government, right? It's pennies on the dollar for their profit margins. And they've been doing that as long as they've been in business. That is the business model of the petrochemical industry, okay? That's also the largest supporter of the Republican Party, right? That in the pharmaceutical industry. So why do they want to weaken democracy? Because then they get to do what they want, right? Then they get guys in office that'll do their bidding, guys that are so corrupt and so immoral, just freak shows, you know, that, that'll get in there and gum up the works, right? Look at the New York Times article yesterday, this guy, George Santos, who was running in New York, New York 3, I think, two or three in Whitestone, Nassau County, you know, Western Nassau, Whitestone, Queens, right? This guy, George Santos, openly gay, got nothing to do <laughs> with anything, right? But appealing to the GOP because it's like, look, we got a gay guy. We got a black guy like Herschel Walker, right? 
So it turns out the guy lied about everything. He lied about his education, going to Baruch, going to NYU. He lied about working at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, right? He said he had a job at Citigroup that didn't even exist, you know, a associate like real estate investor or some, you know, it's in the New York Times. Excellent piece, worth reading. I don't know why it came out a month after the election <laughs> and not a month before. Actually, I do, and I'll get into that in a minute. But so this, this guy who's wholly unqualified, you know, runs twice in this district and wins the second time in this most recent election. And now he's going to be a part of the 118th Congress if he is seated. He shouldn't be based on what was revealed yesterday, right? So he lies about his job. He lies about his education. He lied about having four employees in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando that were murdered. There's no record that any of his employees were there, okay? He lied about his address. The New York Times went and knocked on the door of where he lived, and the person there was like, it was a lady, and she's like, I never heard of this guy, right? That was on his voter registration form and his financial disclosures. The guy got evicted twice, right, in Queens in like, you know, 2019. Then the pandemic hit, and he came out against the eviction moratorium, saying it was hurting landlords, right? And here's a guy who got kicked out of his own apartment for not paying his rent, right? So the same kind of hypocrisy that they seek out, right? Governor Abbott, same sort of dude, right? Won $9 million when an oak tree fell on him and then became Texas Attorney General, before he was governor and revised tort laws so nobody else could get the big settlement he got. You know, he sided with insurance companies. So that same kind of like getting a hand up yourself and then pulling up the ladder so nobody else can, can benefit from it, that kind of, you know, immorality and criminality. This guy's Brazilian too, right? So it turns out that his mom was a nurse for like an old guy in Brazil when he lived in Brazil. Santos stole that old guy's checkbook and got charged with it and fled Brazil. So he's also like an international fugitive, which makes it especially ironic since like all the lies that Trump ran on were like, you know, they're not sending us their best people. They're sending us rapists and criminals, you know, and then the GOP runs a criminal from South America. And I'm not saying Trump was correct in all that. It's just an ironic point that's worth mentioning. You know, most of the immigrants that I've ever met, actually all of them, have always been hardworking, you know, excellent people that we should welcome into this country and we could learn from. But anyway, this guy's not one of them. This guy's clearly a scumbag. He's clearly bad news. You know, and he may be seated in this next Congress if, if enough outrage doesn't happen, you know? Doesn't, like, if... It, and who's to think it will? You know, it's pretty late in the game. Why did the New York Times write this piece, you know, after the fact? You know, why didn't Newsday cover it? Why didn't local media cover it? Well, it's a complicated answer. A lot of local media has been destroyed, right? The big conglomerates, Sinclair Media, Gannett, all these companies sort of bought local papers and put them out of business, right? Because that, that allows democracy to function better you know, to have people paying close attention to local races instead of just voting for their team, right? The GOP wants it binary. You're either a Democrat, they're demons, you know, and traitors, or you're a Republican. We're the good guys, right? They don't want nuance. They don't want subtlety on the local level. They want you to vote party line, right? So media has been 
you know, chipped away, right? They don't, even the big newspapers don't have enough reporters to cover this stuff. Washington Post just laid off a bunch of people last week. The Times has as well. So that's one way that the, that the sort of people who control the narrative and, and own media like a Murdoch, you know, can, can, can hamper democracy and the free sort of trading of information. The other way, and the more cynical view, is that if you own one of these papers, it's a lot bigger story after the fact, right? It's a lot bigger story yesterday when it went viral that everybody found this out, that the guy was lying about any, everything, right? That, that could have taken, you know, one junior reporter, and I'll get to the DNC next. The DNC completely dropped the ball on this to the point that, you know, there needs to be investigations and dudes need to lose their jobs, okay? Like Sean Patrick Maloney already screwed up the New York congressional race, you know, the head of the, you know, Democratic Party in New York State needs to be replaced. I don't want to get too much into the weeds with that because people listen from all over the country and the world. But, the, you know, it wasn't just any one thing that allowed this guy to, to, to get elected, is my point. But he gets elected, and now it's a bigger story. Right. Because now it goes viral because everybody's like, what the hell? How did this guy, you know, how did this not come out earlier? It's a bigger story now. Right. If you look at drama, tragedy, you know, Greek tragedies, for example, it has to be a royal. Right. It has to be a rich person like somebody prominent has to has to like have, you know, the conflict for it to engage an audience. Right. The stakes have to be raised. So it's a theatrical device to let this guy get into Congress, then write the story. Then it's like, oh my God, look at what a freak show we got on our hands, you know, <laughs> by this story. You know, that, that model is how we got Trump. There was a million articles in the New York Times about Hillary's emails, right? There was a million articles this election cycle in New York about the crime wave in New York, and not one article about this dude who lied about some of the most prominent schools and companies in New York City, right? You couldn't got, get past a co-op board saying you went to Baruch and you didn't, you know, or you worked at Citigroup, let alone Goldman Sachs, you know? If you're interviewing on Park Avenue, they'd be like, oh, you know my brother-in-law, Bob? He's the head of institutional investments, you know? Let me call him up, see what he thinks of you. None of that was done. There was no due diligence done, either in opposition research Right. And this guy's opponent, Robert Zimmerman, not Bob Dylan, <laughs> the other one, this guy was screaming about it the whole time, but nobody was picking it up. There was no local press and New York Times was taking a pass until they drop the bombshell story on a Monday morning. And now it sells papers and now it's a storyline. Right. Think of it in terms of, you know, some show that you're binging. You know, now the guy's a star in a bad way, but it's almost like the reality show imprint on politics and on the body politic and on media. You know, you need the crazy one to get people to tune in, right? You need the Amarosa or the Puck, right? You're watching those things to see people behave badly, right? You're buying newspapers for the same thing. If it bleeds, it leads. But it's dangerous, right? Because this guy has no business being in Congress, and he's not the first chaos agent they've thrown in there. We got Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert, you know, and all these Tea Party scoundrels that came in 10 years earlier, Ted Cruz and all these guys, right? We're about to get J.D. Vance as a senator. Again, the DNC has a lot to do with that.
I'm not trashing him. I love Joe Biden. That red card up there, that's from the White House. Just a brag. Thank you. <laughs> Christmas card. But you see my point. You know, we have to like, we have to fight for our ability to exchange information. Because as I've said many times on this show, it otherwise becomes whoever lies the loudest controls the narrative. And again, why Twitter is a very attractive property for somebody like Murdoch, you know, for somebody like Elon Musk to say, I'm going to tweet out a poll and I'll step down as CEO if I lose. He loses the poll. He doesn't address the issue. And the next tweet is like about Hunter Biden and, and pushing some other stupid thread, you know, about Hunter Biden's laptop on America that nobody cares about. Okay, Hunter Biden wasn't part of the administration. Nobody cares. Jared and Ivanka made $600 million while they were in the White House, you know? And Jared got $2 billion from KSA and another $1.6, you know? Or Mnuchin got $1.6 from, from them as well, right? So, you know, actual people with positions of power in the Trump administration got huge buyouts when they left, you know, from... from a country that, you know, can best be described as our frenemy, you know, and at worst, like behind 9-11, okay? But, but no favor to democracy, no, no real ally in a true sense. The places that are our real allies, like England, have their own chaos, fomented by Rupert Murdoch. You know, he's done so much damage to England. John Cleese, the great comedian from Monty Python, had a fantastic tweet today. He's like, in my lifetime, nobody's done more damage to the moral core of my country, I'm paraphrasing, than Rupert Murdoch, right? Same thing here. Rupert fundamentally changed the makeup of America. You know, when he saw the base that was sort of left after Reagan, you know, the NASCAR, NFL, you know, kind of Mountain Dew drinking America. Those are all generalizations, okay? I'm just... Yeah. Just go with me here. I know everybody doesn't do that, and all the people that like that aren't bad or Republicans. But there's a certain demographic in red state America, you know, that I've talked about a lot on here. And that was seen as a cash cow to somebody like Murdoch. But you got to dumb them down. You got to cut away their arts funding. You got to wave flags in front of them. You got to tell them they're heroes, you know, and foreigners are coming to take their way of life. And you'll own them if you give them that kind of programming. And that's what they did, you know, them and Rush Limbaugh, you know, and who is the guy who was on Fox News forever until he got fired? He got fired in the Roger Ailes thing. Asshole guy. He used to be on like Access Hollywood. Bill something maybe. I can't even think of his name. You know who I'm talking about. Like the first major idiot before Tucker. Anyway, these kind of guys, you know, they were making bank. And they were just destroying the minds of Americans. They're feeding them, you know, something worse than fast food. You know, they're feeding them hate and they're getting them gymmed up on it, right? And then it went, you know, 20 years of that stuff. It allowed somebody like Trump to walk in, have the dumbest rhetoric ever, make it like WrestleMania. And then it became a huge brand that built an army. And now they do it every day. You know, there was another CPAC yesterday. They had a rally yesterday where Don Jr. was on there bitching about money going to Ukraine, saying, why should we be sending money to Ukraine, right? They're literally giving Putin talking points, okay? They found a torture chamber for children 
in Ukraine last week, right? You probably barely heard about it, which is another reason Elon bought Twitter, right? If you remember, even before he took over the company, he was always tweeting out Putin talking points. He'd be like, hey, I'll do a poll. If everyone agrees, then Russia just gets to keep part of Ukraine. Like, who the hell are you to be saying this stuff? But he's muddying the waters. And another reason Twitter going out of business is good for Putin is you don't hear about those outrages as much, right? That war has almost been going on for a year, okay? You don't hear about it like you did. They're getting bombed right now. They're in railway stations hiding right now. You know, mothers, children, you know, a matter of days before Christmas and they're getting bombed, right? And you're not hearing about it. And the Republicans are like, that's fine with us. <laughs> you know, who are we? You know, how did we get here? Right? Same thing. Big interests want to make a lot of people dumb so they can do bad stuff. Putin isn't a bad guy to Rupert Murdoch. He's not a bad guy to the GOP because he pays their bills, right? You know, there's probably Russian money in the George Santos guy. He went down to Florida, started a company that the S or worked for a company, the New York branch of a company that was like an, a Ponzi scheme in Florida that was shut down by the SEC. The two major investors in that company, we don't know their names, but they turned out to be the same two investors that invested in a political action committee for George Santos and the other crazy Tina Forte, if you know who she is. She, she ran against AOC and was like the chick in their car doing car rants. It was just like a caricature of a stupid Bronx kind of white person, you know, <laughs> like a, a, a Karen, you know, like that's who this person was. So somehow there was a political action committee that funded both of those candidates and nobody knows where all this money came from. And this guy, George Santos, congressman elect, who just been evicted, all of a sudden had enough money to loan his own campaign $700,000, right? Even though he was running a company that had one employee, <laughs> right? So that's money laundering, right? That's a lot of wealth coming in, pouring into all these GOP campaigns, and nobody knows where it's coming from, right? Lauren Boebert is a millionaire now, right? Her husband got paid a huge salary, even though he's just like, you know, no education like dude showing his peepee to girls in a bowling alley he was getting like a you know seven hundred thousand dollar or three hundred thousand dollar consulting fee from some oil company as a geologist <laughs> you know because she sat on the natural resources committee you know minerals you know colorado's full of that stuff right so they get these chaos agents in there these idiots you know, with no morality, and then the big business that's backing them is like, here's how you're going to vote. This is what you're going to do. And these guys don't think about it because they're into their own narcissism. They're like, all of a sudden, I got a new Escalade, you know, and I was in a Honda Civic, you know, before I ran for Congress. Boebert didn't even have her GED. She got it after, you know, she announced her run. And, and I'm not saying Congress shouldn't be representational of America. It should. You shouldn't have to go to Harvard, you know, to be in, in Congress. But you should have a basic understanding of the Constitution and our government. And this George Santos guy very well may not have gone to college. You know, he may have lied about his education. He's in violation of the financial disclosure forms already because he hasn't said where the money came from, you know, that funded his campaign, the 700 grand that he loaned his own campaign. So the guy's already 
lied and broken the law, will he be held accountable? I don't know. You know, nobody does. That's the guessing game. And so far they're winning because there's so many people in Congress that shouldn't be there, you know, and it's disheartening. We had a good run, you know, in the midterms. We, we stopped a bloodbath and I've talked about it plenty. I was honored to go down the White House. I, I was proud of the messaging we did. I'm proud of Joe Biden. He signed the Marriage Equality Act last week. You know, that's a wonderful thing. My mom's a lesbian. I grew up around gay men and women, you know, in that community. I've seen nothing but love, you know, the kind of courage that you really want in the American society, you know, and, and people having the legal protections that marriage affords you only strengthens all of us. It only makes us a better, stronger, more compassionate country, right? You know, I'll play the guitar next week that my mom and her girlfriend gave me for Christmas 30 years ago when I lived with them in a house with two lesbians and a potbelly pig <laughs> in an old farmhouse. <laughs> That's how I started my career in the arts and acting and stuff. But anyway, you know, I'm still friends, you know, with my mom's girlfriend. You know, they, they didn't stay together. But my point is there's, there's many domestic partners where something happens to one of them and they can't go to the hospital. You know, somebody gets in a car crash and they say, are you immediate family? You know, and they're like, sorry, we can't let you in, right? Because they're not married, even though that may be the only family that person has. You're denying people basic protections and basic humanity, you know, and causing untold suffering. Why? Out of hate? It's not really religion when there's that much hate in it, right? There was a lady who cried on the floor of Congress last week crying over the Marriage Equality Act because it offended her sensibility. She was from Missouri. I wrote about it in my Substack, right? But just insanity, you know, hatred. Does anybody, also from Missouri, Josh Hawley, you know, a guy who pretends to be a Christian who gave a fist bump to a bunch of white supremacist racists as they were attacking the U.S. Capitol, right? That's not Christianity. These are evil, evil people at heart, hiding behind a religion that we're supposed to be celebrating. You know, we're in the middle of Hanukkah. It just began the other night, right? Tonight's the third night of Hanukkah, I believe. Season of light. You know, we're going into Christmas. You know, if you look at these religions, a common theme is loving the other as it's yourself. You know, if you take nothing from religion, take that. Do unto others as you want others to do unto you, right? Karma, you know? You're, on, you're only meeting yourself, right? One of the most, you know, you have those little moments in life where you, where you get some kind of, you get a spiritual thing, you know, a spiritual idea becomes real. And uh, I have a cat. He passed away, but uh, he was my best friend. I'm on a PBS show, Why People Love Cats and Dogs, with my cat, my best friend for 18 years. And uh, he's buried out there by the pond. You can't see. But anyway, you know, I've had this cat since 1999. I love this cat so much. At this point, we're in my apartment in New York City. This cat's everything to me. And I would always ride a bicycle around New York. I ride a track bike everywhere. You know, I get out of a show at 1230 at night. I'm, that's me riding my bike up 6th Avenue. It's like how I like to get around. I don't like to get in cabs. I don't like to get on the subway. I like to ride breathe fresh air, go through the park, it opens up the city. It becomes like Paris, right? Even in the cold, I'd ride across Central Park and see the snow and horse-drawn carriages, which I hate. You know, that, that should be 
illegal. That's outmoded. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm riding down Park Avenue one day and, you know, the flip side of that is, you know, you're always getting cut off by cabs and, you know, people going the wrong way on bicycles running into you. Like there's a lot of treachery out there being on a bike in New York City and you get very angry. You know, you'll get mad at pedestrians, you'll get mad at cabs. And I'm the kind of guy who would ride around like cursing at people, <laughs> you know. I lose my temper. That's part of sobriety, right? I got character defects I'm still very capable of acting out on, right? So I remember one day I got mad at like a pedestrian, you know, who like I was going to stop anyway, but they gave me a look like, you know, I was just going to plow into them like I didn't see them or something, you know? And uh, I remember getting angry at them. And then I remember thinking like, hey, maybe that's my cat, right? Like, maybe my cat and what I love in my cat, I can see in every other creature, right? Because the same love is animating us all, right? The same energy that runs through trees and birds and, you know, bugs and all the stuff I'm always talking about. Maybe if I just sort of realign my heart, you know, and recalibrate my thoughts to think of like, I'm always meeting my cat, you know, even if it's you know, scratching me and scared, right? And meowing, there's something tender there. You know, there's a love that in that moment I'm entrusted with, you know? And if I react to everybody I meet and look into their eyes like I'm looking into my cat's eyes, you know? Like this is something I love and care about and want to protect, you know? Then it changes the whole world, right? Because then there's nothing against me, right? I'm not running into bad things. I'm not getting cut off, you know? Yeah, people are going to test me and people are suffering their own things and gonna going to lash out in ways they don't mean to because they're fighting their own battles and they haven't been afforded the grace that maybe I have in that moment to see it from that other perspective. And maybe if I react in the moment with love, I'll change their day. You know, I'll change that bad moment into a good one and we'll help them get on a path, you know, that might make them happier. And if they're happier and their dreams come true, then the rest of us, you know, are better off, right? All boats are lifted, right? Like, you know, energy is how we perceive people. Before anything else, before somebody opens their mouth, you can sense their energy. I went to a show at Ridgefield Playhouse, a theater in Connecticut. This time last year, it was a Christmas show, and I remember this lady came out to sing. And the way she walked on stage, I was like, oh, it's about to be on. You know, she was like a kind of gospel singer, going to do some Christmas stuff, you know, a, a, a big talent in this area, but I didn't know, know her. And I could just tell the way she stepped to the microphone that it was about to get real. <laughs> and it did, right? And five bars into her song. I'm crying. I'm feeling the spirit. She's taking me somewhere and transforming me and giving me a gift, you know, putting some fire in my heart, you know, putting some gratitude in my bones, you know. That's what you want to look for. You want to look for the things that allow you to stand up straight, that allow you to feel better. You know, look at an animal when they look at the sun and they just stick their face in the sun, you know. What are they feeling? What are they doing in that moment? Or a dog looking out at the ocean, you know? 
when I was down in Florida, I watched these iguanas and lizards all day. Lizards are cool as hell, man. Lizards will sit there and like basically get a suntan. They'll look at the sun. They'll be present, you know? And that draws us all in. You'll recognize it when you see it, even if you can't articulate it. If you catch my vibe, if you know what I'm talking about, you know? And, and we can all become messengers for that goodness, you know? If you want to give somebody something this holiday season, you know, give them your best self. Give it to a stranger. Open a door, you know? Do something good for somebody else without looking for credit. You know, do it as a stranger, anonymously. You know, and we all do that. We give, right? And everybody's given this holiday season. And it makes you feel better. That's what they talk about. It's better to give than to receive. You get more out of it, right? It, it, it may not be immediately recognizable, right? It doesn't, it doesn't address our own desires so much, and so it doesn't fill that hole inside of us, you know? And that's why somebody like me, I can only speak for myself, I'm given to selfish things, right? <laughs> My desires are run amok. So you think, oh, if I could just be with that, you know, person or eat that chocolate cake or do whatever that thing is, it's going to make me feel better in the moment or get that new guitar or get that new sampler, you know, was it like an audio thing? <laughs> Not like a Whitman sampler, though that's good too. You give me one of those, I'm eating the whole thing. But my point is, yeah, you know, it, it's good to have things and get gifts and there's a thrill in that i'm not knocking it but when you help somebody else's life get better you know that's something you'll remember your whole life i've gotten a lot of gifts in my life i would get a lot of christmas gifts too my mom gave me a, i got a puppy once for christmas that was my my favorite memory and uh I, I, his story's too sad. I don't want to tell you all. But a little golden retriever. And it was just, I wanted a dog. I got the dog. I was in like first grade. And uh, just loved him. He was my best friend. And uh, then he, uh, then we were getting ready to move to California. And I came home from school one day. And I would always have him tied up in the backyard. And I came home one day and he wasn't there anymore. And I spent the, the next few weeks like making homemade signs. This is like in June, like lost dog. My dog ran away and putting him up all over the neighborhood. And uh, then we had to move to California briefly, you know, with my mom. And I moved out of that town in Maryland, never saw that dog again. And I learned years later that my mom had given the dog away. She just told me it ran away. <laughs> so there's that memory. It's not a great one, but we all got those. And that's not even as I could go darker. But uh, I'll give you the mid-level thing about a gift. But I still remember that dog, right? I still remember the moment they gave it to me in a laundry basket in a, in a blanket, wrapped up in a blanket. You know, my mom was a kid at the time, too. I love my mom. This is not, she's listening to this podcast probably. I'm not dissing her. You know, she had her own issues. You know, I didn't know what to do. and was overwhelmed and the dog got big and whatever. And he went to a better home. It just wasn't explained to me properly why that happened. But anyway, I remember the moment of getting, you know, something that was living and loving me back as opposed to getting the Star Wars action figures or something, right? I remember that gift. That made me feel good. So years later, many years later, I was in, you know, I, I've said it before, I was at NIH over the Christmas holiday. You know, that's when I first got sober. That was 17 years ago, this past November, and I, I left a couple days after Christmas. So I was there this time of year. 17 years ago and I decided to stay through the Christmas holiday and I was going to leave a couple days after 
and they had all these arts and crafts. They had all this creative stuff. Where they basically, like, they gave me a guitar to play in my room when I was there. They had a piano. They, they basically told me, like, work the 12 steps and, like, express yourself creatively. Find other ways, you know, to, to, to ex express and deal with your emotions besides anger and drinking at them, you know, which, which was good advice, holistic advice. And uh, so we had all this stuff we were creating, and I was in there with people from all walks of life, right? There was homeless people in there, you know, unhoused people, you know, you know, skid row guys. And there was, you know, people like me that had potentially higher bottoms and suburban people. It was a whole mix, like an AA meeting, right? It's all walks of life. The disease does not discriminate, right? You'll have doormen and CEOs and it doesn't matter, right? If you got it, you got it. And we all have the same solution. So we come together. So I'm there with all kinds of people. And there was a woman there that I was very close to, very cool, like from the Maryland area, really tough, hard life. And I'm kind of can be good at making artistic stuff, you know, arts and crafts. And I did a painting for her on like a doormat or something. I had this like doormat and you could paint and color it. And I did my best on it and I gave it to her. I said, here, you can have this, you know, Merry Christmas. And she came up to me with tears in her eyes. So that sounds like a Trump story, right? big, strong man. But she came up to me, genuinely emotional, and she was like, thank you for this. You know, when I get out, I'm going to give this to my son, and I'll have something to give him this year. You know, I'm very glad, you know, that I have this to give to him. Because it was a token of somebody's thought, of somebody caring and thinking about the other. You know, and I've, I've had my mom in prison at Christmas. I visited my mom in the D.C. jail right after she got arrested, you know, when I was 13 years old and saw the little family party that they had for incarcerated mothers where they'd hand out, you know, gloves and hats, mittens and caps. This is in Baltimore, you know? That was the gifts. And seeing these kids happily opening their gift and then kissing their mom, you know, who was going to go back to a cell and they were going to go back to whatever life they were living, you know, including myself. You know, heartbreaking stuff. When you mix institutions, institutions and holidays, there's some real heartbreak, you know. And there I was in an institution myself, National Institutes of Health, with all this baggage, with all my own mistakes, my own alcoholism, but now given a second chance on life and spending a Christmas there, right? And I had the option to get out. I could have gone to see my family. I could have done something else. But I knew the place for me to be was there because the spirit had come back into me in those 30 days, right? The meaning of doing something for somebody else, of helping other people, because that was explained to me. If you want to stay sober, you got to learn how to give it away. You got to learn how to be of service to others. You know, and they would take us to meetings in the DC area. We got to go to a meeting on Christmas morning in somebody's home in Potomac, Maryland, which is a very Tony neighborhood, if you know the DMV, right? You know, and I was like, wow, this person's letting all these, you know, 20 of us from rehab into their basement, you know, living room or whatever for an AA meeting. That's pretty kind, right? Kindness, the kindness of strangers, doing something, being of service is such an undervalued thing in our society because we're all consumed with like sort of what we can get and what we can provide to others. But sometimes the best thing you can give is free. 
it doesn't cost you anything, but it represents something bigger. It represents love and a human-to-human -human interaction. You know, there's value in that. And we got to start teaching people that. We got to start showing people that it doesn't matter how much you earn in life sometimes. It matters how much, it matters how much you give back. You can't take any of it with you, right? Elon Musk is not going to really die a wealthier man than somebody who doesn't have much to his name and has got a smile for everybody he meets and is opening the door for others, you know, and, and is being a good human being when he can and kind to all living creatures. You know, kindness is undervalued. Go out of your way to help life, you know. Take the bug and put it outside. Drive slower on the roads when you know deer might be jumping out, you know. Think about what you're consuming, you know, and what kind of life that product had, right? And how many animals were exploited, you know, in making it. You know, I love shoes, but my shoe game is going to drop off because I can't keep doing it, you know. That was an animal on that new pair of boots, you know. That animal gave birth to another animal, you know, through love, right? It's all love when you come into this world. Everybody comes into the world the same, right? Everyone's this loving, special creature that's a miracle, right? That's what the birth of Jesus should be, you know? And its purest form is that every human life is of value, even the one that you're saying isn't of value because his parents are so poor that he's being born in a manger because there was no room at the inn because they weren't wealthy enough right? What's the lesson there is that it all has value. Nobody's undervalued. So when you see the GOP demonizing immigrants this holiday season as they're doing ad nauseum, men like Tom Cotton, you know, men whose great-great-grandfathers owned slaves and they still benefit, you know, enslaved people, and they still benefit from that today. And they're trying to continue that system of economic injustice, right? You know, think about that. Think about what the lessons are. It's the same lesson over and over, right? Because we don't get it. That's sort of what Earth is. You know, it's like a school, and you're getting a chance to learn something, you know? And when you learn it, you know, then you become awake. And it doesn't mean you get everything you need. It means you realize you already have enough, you know? And if you don't have enough, somebody who does might give you some of theirs, and then you're going to understand what that feels like, and then you're going to give it to somebody else, you know? And then you're making it a better place. You're actually contributing something of value. It's why I always preach on the arts. It doesn't mean you have to be great at some kind of thing or make your living at it. It means you have to find the joy in doing something for no other reason than doing it or trying to express something true to your own experience that somebody else might relate to. And it might lift their burdens for a moment. It might help their day. It might illuminate the struggle that we all go through, you know, that countries and societies go through. I saw a great Martin McDonough, if you know the Irish playwright, there's a new there's a new movie made of one of his plays. It's called The, Ban the Banshees of Inish Inishmam or something. It's a made-up island name. But uh, 
It's basically the Aryan Islands off the coast of Ireland. And it's uh, Colin Farrell, I think is his name. Good looking, you know, dude who was like a big star 10 years ago. Wonderful performance. I mean, just an incredible film. And it's a metaphor, you know, for sort of heartbreak and people warring against each other, right? And the Irish know a lot about that, right? You know, countrymen turning their backs on each other for pride and ego, you know? It's, it's a great parable. I, I just got off on a tangent to tell you about it, but, but uh, watch it. But my point is that's art, right? It's brilliantly written. Each line is so well calibrated and funny. And, you know, it, it's a hardcore theatrical device. You know, it's like a Grimm's fairy tale or something, but it's brilliant and it's really good. And it shows what art can do. It makes you think, you know, after you watch it, you're like, oh, that's what that meant. And that's what this meant, you know? I don't want to say any more about it because I don't want to spoil, you know, you from watching it, but watch it. There's some achingly beautiful lines in it, too, and performances. So check that out. Um, thank you to the people who bought T-shirts. I appreciate that, as always. There was a guy named Michael and a guy named Rob who bought shirts this week. I sent them out. Rob bought, like, a bunch, like three. That's the most I've ever sold from one person. So thank you, and thank you, Michael. Another young lady just bought one. I'm going to send that out to you tomorrow, and I'll give you a, a shout-out next week. I pack them up and send them out myself. I go to the post office to do that. I can't do it instantly when the orders come in, but I do it you know, within 24 hours of seeing it, just so you know. And you can get those T-shirts at noelcastler.com. You can subscribe to my Substack for free. All you do is put in your email, and I send you a newsletter at least twice a week, and I work really hard on those. And you can also subscribe if you want to support the podcast. None of this stuff is really for money, but it does help. And uh, the podcast doesn't have any commercials or anything except for YouTube. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, not doing this to, <laughs> I'm not doing this to get rich, you know. But if you want to support it, that's how you do it. Otherwise, you know, pay it forward. You know, I appreciate all the comments. That means more to me than anything. You know, is people saying that this show meant something to you. Because, you know, I'm speaking to a computer. You know, I'm speaking into the void, into the digital void, and I'm basically ranting, you know, on the day's events or the week's events. And you don't think it's going to, you know, resonate with anybody. And then it does, and, you know, that lifts my burden. And for those suffering, you know, this holiday season, I got a lot of sadness, man. I could sit here for another hour and tell you, <laughs> tell you all kinds of sad stories. And I don't want to feel sorry for myself, you know, because part of the solution I have, and all my stuff isn't alcohol related, it always comes to uh, down to that for me, because that's the program, right? That, that's, I've been shown a bit of a way out of this stuff. You know, if I follow these spiritual principles and if I work 12 steps and if I'm of service and if I, you know, get a sponsor and try to help a newcomer, I won't be lost, you know. And I've spent Christmases lost, drunk, alone, by myself, you know, wallowing in my own self-pity. And it's not a good place to be, you know. And that same Christmas, this is a long story. I don't know if I should tell it to you. All right, let me see if I can give you the cliff notes of this. Bear with me. So... You know, I'm there in rehab, and I went to NIH because they were doing an experimental program, right? So they had this drug that had helped alcoholics recover 
in, in Europe and they were testing it in the United States and I signed up for an experimental protocol. And I was like, that's great. They're going to give me a pill. It's going to solve all my problems. I'm stoked, you know? <laughs> so I went down there and the day I got there, they're like, hey, guess what? It's a double blind protocol, which means only the pharmacy is going to know if you're actually getting the drug. So you might be getting the drug and you might be getting a placebo and nobody's really going to know. And we're going to study you while you're here. We're going to give you a couple spinal taps and an MRI and a CRH test where we're going to inject you with cortisol and measure your fight or flight instincts. And then we're going to do it all again at the end of the month. How's that sound? <laughs> and I'm like, that sounds awful. <laughs> you know, I thought I was going to get cured. Now I might not even be getting the medicine. And I'm all ashen. And I walk back into my room and this male nurse comes in and he can see I'm really distraught. He goes, what's wrong? And I'm like, what's wrong? You know, I thought I was going to rehab and I was going to get this miracle cure and now I might not even be getting the medicine. And he goes, do me a favor, surrender. And I go, what? And he goes, surrender right now. Because while you're here, you're going to learn to live one day at a time. You're going to get to go to AA meetings. You're going to learn about your disease. That will make you feel better. Forget about the drugs, you know, do that, you know, one day at a time. And when he told me that, you know, that fear and anxiety that I carried in my chest like concrete, that pain from my childhood, that anxiety from my mom going to prison, this whole story that I told myself was the reason that I drank and felt so much pain. And some of it is legitimate pain, but that anxiety was lifted in that moment. I'd never met this guy before, but I knew he was telling me the truth. Something deep within my soul knew he was telling me the truth, right? And day one led to day two to day three. They're doing spinal taps on me. I'm telling the nurse I know Madonna, like I'm back to my old self, <laughs> you know? I'm laughing, I'm smiling, I'm feeling better. You know, a couple weeks into it, they're like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm doing great. You know, you guys are on to something with these pills. Like, this is amazing. You know, and I'm going to meetings every night. I'm doing like, you know, what I described. You know, I'm, I'm helping out the other people. I'm listening, you know, which is a big part of being in the program is that it's like group therapy. You know, you give your attention to somebody else. Giving attention and listening to somebody is an act of kindness. And you guys are doing that for me every week, right? That's a spiritual act. It's presence. You know, allowing somebody else to tell their story. So I'm doing all this stuff. I'm feeling better and it's time to leave. And I have that Christmas weekend. I give this gift to this woman. You know, I'm getting out the next day and I'm in the final, or this last day I was there, I'm in the final like, you know, alcohol awareness class with this really cool guy who was like the night supervisor and he would bring us half smokes. You know what a half smoke is? It's like a hot dog from D.C. It's good. <laughs> you know, when you're eating institutional food, and the institutional food was great at NIH too. That was the other thing. You could order off a menu and it was good food. It was, you know, it saved my life, no doubt about it. And this is, you know, a big research facility where they're only studying fatal diseases, right? It has to kill you or they don't bother with it at NIH. That's what they, their congressional mandate is. That's where they get funding, right? They're trying to crack the code, so to speak, you know, and it's where they developed AZT, where they, you know, crack the genetic code that, you know, the list goes on and on. And Dr. Fauci, by the way, was the head of all that. 
you know, and the guys wear epaulets. It's the National Health Service. Like, you know, it's it's an incredible thing that this country has, the NIH. You know, again, just the fact that it's attacked is nuts. So I'm there the last day, and the guy's like, all right, Noel, so you're getting out of here today. You know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, you know, first thing I'm going to do is call up my physician and get, get a prescription for this drug you guys have been giving me because I feel great, you know. And then I'm going to go to some of these meetings, and I'm going to be fine. You know, I was all cocky with the dude. And he goes, do me a favor. And I go, what? He goes, do me a favor and look out the window. And the next ward to us was the pediatric oncology ward, the pediatric cancer ward. And I'd seen these children over the holidays. I'd seen them getting wheeled around by their families on Christmas Day. You know, these kids that were bald, you know, and still smiling and taking experimental medicines so somebody else's kid could live down the road, you know. Most of these kids probably weren't ever getting out of there, you know. Their families and these children, these brave, beautiful children, were doing it for somebody else someday, you know. Experimental, right? And I'd seen these kids over the holidays. The most heartbreaking thing you could ever see. And the guy said, look at that wing. And think about what those families would say if I were to walk into their room right now and say their child can leave here today with their fatal disease in full remission if they were to go to a meeting, if they were to work 12 steps, if they were to get a sponsor, you know, if they were to do service and help another human being, you think they'd trade places with you? Because you're in the same boat. You both have a fatal disease, but you get to leave here today with your fatal disease in full remission based on your spiritual well-being. And more people die of your disease than die of cancer. It just comes out in ways we can't measure. Accidents, violence, neglect, right? All these other ancillary things that happen when you get locked up in that kind of world, right? And when the dude put it to me like that, I got it, right? If I had insulin, I would take it, you know? I was like, man, I'm an asshole to not completely do everything I can in my power, you know, to deal with this. And he gave it to me hard, you know? That sounds bad. <laughs> he spit some truth in my face, right? He goes, that's the deal. You're both in the same boat, but you get to change the direction of your life. You get to have a second act by helping other people, by following spiritual principles. And most people who get your chance don't even take it. And he goes, all right, Noel, I'm going to buzz you out. I'll leave your duffel bag on the other side of the door. And if you have a prescription, I'll leave it on top of the bag. Good luck to you, dude. And I was like, damn. You know? So they buzzed me out. I opened the door. I looked down. There's my duffel bag, and it had like a napkin on it, like the kind, like you get in a washroom, like a paper napkin. And it said, Noel. And I opened it up, and it said placebo. Right? There was no drug. I'd never been given a drug. In 30 days there, taking these pills, I was eating Tic Tacs. It was candy. It was a placebo. The thing that changed my life and allowed me to walk out of there that day was the program, was AA, was these spiritual, you know, concepts that I was now introduced and a way to live and sort of deal with my pain one day at a time. And it worked. 
you know, and it hasn't been a straight line since then, right? But that was a gift, is my point, you know? All the money in the world, they have at NIH, right? All the technology, all this fancy stuff, and what it came down to was sharing open and honestly with another human being, right? Was trying to live by some spiritual principles. And this is, you know, it can be AA, it can be whatever. It works for anything in your life, right? And that was revelatory to me. You know, they would tell me to do yoga when I was there. As I said, play music, you know, eat healthy. Exercise is key. There was all these modalities. You know, the guy told me like fish oils. Tell everybody in the world to eat fish oils. One of the chief doctors there was doing a study on fish oils and like how many benefits they had. So my point is it was almost like they were hippy-dippy. I got there thinking it was all going to be science and they were like, hey, stuff that you can do for free will make a big difference in your life right? The best things in life are free, right? Giving is the true miracle of Christmas. So thank you for all you've given me this year. I love you guys. I love you listening. I got heavy once again. Sunlight's coming in here. It's time to, time to roll into the sunset. And uh, I just, you know, I thank you so much. It's been a great year. A lot of cool things have happened. I'll do another show before the year ends. But I want everybody to have a safe and wonderful holiday. Thank you for listening. I'll play you some more music next time. Until then, this is episode 90 of the Noel Kassler podcast. And check out my sub stack, Noel's Notes. Y'all be safe. Bye. <laughs>